Today on Theology in Progress, I'm going to share with you my favorite chapter in all of Scripture. When I was in high school, my relationship with God really deepened. I had mentioned on a previous episode how there was a period in my life where I was kind of apathetic toward God. And in high school was where I really started to turn things around, and I would say that God really drew me to himself in a powerful way. And the hub for a lot of that was Isaiah chapter 6. For about a year, I read this chapter every single day. I read it in every translation I could find. I took pages and pages of notes on it. I listened to at least half a dozen sermons, and I was just obsessed with this chapter. And honestly, if you read it, it isn't a complex chapter at all. It's very straightforward. The meaning is pretty clear. It's not like some other Old Testament books or prophecies where you'll need a lot of studying so that you can understand just what's going on in the first place. It's not like Romans or Ephesians or the Gospel of John or anything like that where the ideas are so deep and complex and interrelated that it takes time to soak in. This isn't a complex chapter, but it is a powerful chapter. It felt like God's presence was hovering over this one chapter for an entire year for me. And so I just sat down. I felt like the Israelites a little bit when they saw the fire of God's presence going a certain direction, they followed it. And there's a certain verse that says, and when the fire stopped, when the pillar stopped moving, they just stayed there. And that's how it felt. It felt like God's fiery presence had descended on this one chapter. And so I said, okay, I'm just going to stay here then. And I stayed there for about a year. This is definitely the chapter that I've read the most. It's the chapter God has used most often to encourage me as well as humble me. And it's the chapter I've preached on the most times. Um, Fun fact, the second time that I preached on it, I preached from 26 pages of notes. Now, in my defense, these notes were like double space and size 14 font, but still it was a little bit crazy. I think it lasted 45 minutes. But during the first time that I preached it, it was right after high school, I knew I wanted to do something related to ministry, and my pastor asked me if I wanted to do an internship with him. And during that internship, I ended up doing five of those internships like in a row, like each summer, because they were great. I was able to follow my pastor around, I was able to learn all kinds of stuff about ministry. It was fantastic. Um, during that first internship, it was the first time I had ever preached, and this was actually the first text that I've ever preached on at all. And about a week before I was supposed to preach on it, my pastor had me practice the sermon. It was just him and me. He sat on the front row, and I stood behind the pulpit, and I got through my notes, and as soon as I was finished, I began crying. Like, I began weeping, basically. He had to (laughs) comfort me. And I look back and laugh, but in a way, like, it makes perfect sense to me still to this day. Because this is, I love teaching. I absolutely love to teach scripture. This is my favorite chapter in scripture to teach. And yet it's also one of my least favorite chapters in scripture to teach. Because I know every single time that I step up to try to teach that I will fall so utterly short of conveying what's here. So I'm actually going to pray right now and ask God to help me. Because what I want to do for this podcast is go through one of my past sermon notes with you and just share with you what this passage has done for me. So let's pray really quick. So Lord, we come to you now and we ask that you would help me during this podcast to teach your word well, to show people the amazing power of your presence that's in this chapter of scripture. I pray that anything that's not true of you 
would be ignored by the listeners. And I pray that the truths about your holiness and the seriousness of sin and that a passion for serving you would fill us all, God. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Now, I've approached this chapter multiple different ways, but the way I want to approach it today is by asking a simple question up front and allowing Isaiah chapter 6 to answer that question for us. And this one question can be asked in many different ways, such as, what happens to the person who encounters God? Or, what happens to the person whom God encounters? Or, what would it be like to see God? Or, how would I respond if God appeared to me in a vision? Or, how different would my life be if Matthew 5.8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, were true for me? Or what would happen to my soul if God were to answer my prayer requests that I might know him more? And I ask these questions, I ask this one question in many different forms for three different reasons. First, I want to ask this question as a test. So if you were to ask me, what's your purpose and goal in life? I would say, I want to know God. I think that is the objectively correct answer. However, am I truly coming to know God better? Are you? We should want to know how well we have come to know God. Just as much as a student would want to know how well he did on his last assignment, we ought to know, am I meeting the purpose for my life? The purpose that I say that I have, like I say that this is true, am I actually making progress in it? Second, I want to look at Isaiah not only for a test, but as an encouragement. For those of you who feel like your progress is slow, I hope this can encourage you and say, oh yeah, God has been working on me. And third, I want to look at this chapter, not primarily to see how Isaiah was changed by seeing God, but to see the one who changed Isaiah, to catch a glimpse of God himself. So the idea here is we're asking the question, what happens when someone encounters God? And we're looking at Isaiah 6, because in this chapter, Isaiah comes face to face with the living God, and we get to see him be transformed, and yet we're looking through him as well to see the God who transforms him. This chapter shows us four ways in which Isaiah was transformed by beholding God. And in verses 1 through 3, we see the first effect. The first effect is that Isaiah came to stand in awe at God's holiness. So I'm going to read the first three verses. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So in the year that King Uzziah died, that's how it starts off. It seems that Isaiah was in the temple, and he sees a vision of God. And I think he's in the temple because it says at the end of verse 1 that the train of his robe filled the temple. So he's in the temple, and suddenly he catches a glimpse of the worship going on in the heavenly temple. And he not only sees things, but primarily he hears something. He hears the seraphim shouting out, Holy, holy, holy. And repetition is a way to emphasize something in Hebrew. The seraphim are simply so struck at the holiness of God and they know no other way to describe it than to just keep saying it again and again and again and again and again and again and again. 
holy, 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 holy. And by saying that God is holy, they are saying that God is utterly different from themselves. That's what the word holy means. It comes from the same Hebrew word for cut. And it has to do with something being set aside as distinct. So when applied to God, it means that he is completely distinct or cut off from us. Therefore, it would be a false analogy to say that we are like a drop and that God is like the ocean. It would be a false analogy to say that we are like little candles and God is like the burning sun. He is completely distinct. He is completely different. And the angels get that. They have been praising him for thousands of years, and they are still singing the same song once we get to Revelation chapter 4 at the end of the Bible. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. It's like they just come up against this wall of who God is, and they have to say, I've never seen or heard or beheld anything like this anywhere. It's impossible to see God in his holiness and think, you know, I think I've seen something like this before. He is utterly different. So the question is, does this happen to you? We want to apply this as a test, right? The question is, what happens when someone comes face to face with God? What happened to Isaiah? He sees God and he is struck by the holiness of God. Does this happen to you? When is the last time that it happened to you? It's an incredible feeling to feel like you just run into a wall. You reach the very end of human capacity to comprehend God's depths. You suddenly realize that you are in the presence of the living God, and he is infinitely higher than you. It is a delightful form of being put down, of being humbled, of covering yourself in dust and ashes, and recognizing that the infinite lives Has that happened? Now, notice also, not just what was said, holy, 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 but who said it. It said that it was the seraphim crying out, holy, holy, holy. So Isaiah describes the scene. He sees a throne. He sees the hem of God's robe filling the temple. He sees angels, and he sees God. And notice that he doesn't even try to describe God. It's literally not possible. So to help us get a sense of what it was like, he describes everything else and our minds are left to imagine what kind of God must this be who elicits such a response from angels like this, that the temple's foundations shake like this, that Isaiah is changed like this. What cause stands behind the awe of all of these creatures? And what do we see when we look at the angels specifically, the seraphim? First of all, their names are the seraphim, which literally means burning ones. Seraph is the Hebrew word for fire. And when you make something masculine plural, you add im to the end. So it's seraphim, it's the burning ones. Their angelic souls are on fire because they stand so close to God that they are completely consumed in worship of him. That is the imagery. It's something so close to God's blazing presence that they catch on fire themselves. Do you stand close enough to God that your souls begin to burn? Also, notice that they have wings. It says that with two they cover their faces, with two they flew, and with two they cover their feet. Well, why are those three things mentioned? Well, they cover their faces because not even they 
sinless angels can look on God and live. Can you wrap your head around this? They've never sinned. Never sinned. And yet God is so magnificent that if they were to even peek at God directly, they would become undone. His holiness is just far too bright. And yet that doesn't stop them from worshiping. They will cover their faces if they must, just so they can go on worshiping. And related to this, notice what else they say in worship. They say the whole earth is full of his glory. That's such an interesting thing to say. Or what it literally is in the Hebrew is the fullness of the whole earth is his glory. And that's an interesting thing for the angels to point out because you'd think they'd say something like, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. He is glorious. And yet what they say is, Holy, 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 the fullness of of the whole earth is his glory. The word for full is a noun in Hebrew, not an adjective. That's why it's not the whole earth is full of his glory, but the fullness of the earth is his glory. Um, but again, why do the angels care? Why do they mention this while praising God for his holiness? Think about it. If you were in the presence of God, would you take time to look away from him and to look to a world full of sin? To look at something so unholy. Who cares what's going on down here. When they can enjoy the fire of God's presence. Well here's why. They look away from God to this earth. Because they can look directly at this earth. Without hiding their faces. But they have to cover their faces in God's presence. So the image that emerges is of seraphim going back and forth from worshiping God directly with their wings over their faces to them looking down to this earth to perceive the scattered glimmers of his glory that are small enough for their eyes to handle. It's a fascinating thing that also it's not just their faces that they cover, but it's also their feet, which I think suggests that it's similar to Moses when he encountered the burning bush, the imagery of its holy ground, its holy presence. And then the two wings to fly suggest their willingness to just obey God at a willing at a moment's notice. So again, we're still talking about the first effect that we see that Isaiah is just stunned by the holiness of God when he encounters him. The question is, what happens when we see God? And the first thing is, we are stunned by his holiness. But now, when we've talked about the angels, we've talked about that phrase, holy, holy. Let's back up for just a second and notice the context. Remember, it began by saying that this all happened in the year that King Uzziah died. And it says in 2 Chronicles 26 that he, Uzziah, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He set himself to seek God. However, after a decent beginning, his heart became proud, and he tried to offer sacrifices in the temple, which was a job strictly set aside for the priests and the priests alone. So the Lord struck him with leprosy. Uzziah was a man who did not fear the holiness of God. People die. Kingdoms are removed. Leaders fall when they forget the fear of Yahweh. And Uzziah's death could have been a time of anxiety for Isaiah and the rest of Judah. There needed to be a new king. And that is not an, always an easy transition. And there was no guarantee that the next king would be a God-fearing man. And so it easily could have felt like, I mean, like most Americans feel during election time. But Isaiah saw beyond the thrones of human kings, and he saw the throne of heaven. Although the earthly one was vacant, he who sat on the throne of heavens was glorious. It's good for Christians to be involved in politics and aware of current events, 
but it is absolutely out of place for Christians to become anxious or cynical or to put their trust in politicians. If you do any of those things, it's because you look far too infrequently to the heavenly throne. So first, Isaiah came to be in awe of God of God's holiness. And I have to admit that there have been so many times that I've lost this sense of God's holiness. Um, a few summers ago, I read the book Dangerous Calling by Paul David Tripp, and I probably won't include that during this series where I'm going through all the different things that I've read and learned from, just because this is really the main thing that stood out to me from this book, so I can just include it here. In this book, it's about the dangers of pastoral ministry, and he has a chapter on mediocrity in which he discusses why it is that there are so many pastors who just throw together a sermon on a Saturday night and fail to display excellence in their preaching. And I know I've done this in how I've prepared for leading small groups in Bible studies. And he argues that the problem isn't laziness, and the problem isn't that they're too busy, which is what I've always blamed my problems on for when I haven't prepared well for a sermon. The problem is that I had lost my awe for God. For if I were still in awe of God, it wouldn't even need to be a question. I would work hard and labor for more hours and hours to try and get these people to see just a glimpse of this God who has captivated my soul. It's something that I still struggle with to this day. Like, honestly, even right now while speaking, there is a sense of guilt over the fact that I can be teaching with energy and excitement on Isaiah 6. And yet I know in the back of my head that over the last several days, this hasn't been an ongoing reality for me. I wish that it was. And there have been times in my life when it has been much more of a reality. And I want those days again. So, no matter where you're at, try to cultivate an awe at the holiness of God. So, seeing God, first of all, leads to awe at his holiness. But second, it leads to an awareness of sin. And this is the next two verses, verses 4 and 5. It says, And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Verse 4 introduces this second scene. And the transition is actually marked in Hebrew by switching from a katal verb to a viaktal verb. And that's just for the Hebrew nerds. Quick shout out to you. But the first scene was of the angels shouting the holiness of God. Now in scene two, everything begins to shake. So imagine standing there and you hear this earth shaking voice booming out. But then literally like things begin to shake around you. It's like a little earthquake in the temple. It would be a crazy scene for Isaiah. And it's as if in that moment, he's come very close to being the next Uzziah, being caught in a situation where God's holiness meets his sinfulness, and it is he who gets destroyed. So he cries out, woe is me, woe is me, for I am lost. He's done for. If even sinless angels can barely stand on their feet in the presence of this holy God, is it any wonder that Isaiah trembles like he's next, he's going to be shot out of there. It is absolutely impossible for man to behold God and not by and not be struck by his holiness. And likewise, it's impossible for man to understand God's holiness without simultaneously understanding his own sin. And this is the consistent theme throughout scripture that when we see the holiness of God, we come to know our own sin. 
I mean, when Job really beheld God at the end of that book, he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This reminds me of what I was talking about last time with A.W. Tozier, that the world has far too many scribes and not enough prophets. Scribes, again, they write things down about what other people have said, but prophets are men who have seen God themselves. And when you become a prophet, you recognize your own sinfulness. When you see God yourself, it's not this thing that gives you this power. It's not this thing that puffs you up. It tears you down. There is a point of coming to Christ that is always a dying. There is so much dying involved in following God, dying to yourself, dying to your sin, dying to your ego. And part of that involves this recognition that compared to everyone else, you know, I'm pretty good guy. You know, it's pretty easy in today's world and any time in history, if you just put forward a little bit of effort to seem impressive compared to most people, like it's not that hard. But when you are coming face to face with a holy God, it is a totally different story. And so here's that test again. Has this been happening to you? Has this been something where you have felt a sense of your own sin? Like when's the last time you were convicted of sin? Um, it's interesting. If you go back to chapter five, you will see a whole chapter filled with the phrase, woe unto you. He says, woe unto you, you who confuse good for evil and evil for good. Woe unto you who confuse light for dark and dark for light. Woe unto you who join house to house to basically destroy the poor. He's been giving out all of these denunciations. He sees all of this evil in the world. And now all of a sudden he points the finger back at himself and says, woe unto you, woe unto you, woe unto you, and woe is me. And the word woe is used in the prophets especially, as kind of a mark, as a signifier of God's curse upon someone. They are outside of God's loving presence, and so they are going to be completely undone by sin. You know, I think this is a moment for Isaiah that has to happen for each of us, where it's so easy to see the sin out in the world. It's so easy to get upset about all the things that are happening, but then to recognize that out there, it's in me too. I am not guilt. I am not innocent. I am guilty as well. I've been complicit. I've been a part of it all. I'm sinful. So again, when is the last time you've grieved over your sin? As one preacher said, whenever people tell me they heard a word from God or saw God in a vision, I always ask them, oh, so did you fall on your face and feel as if you were about to be consumed? If not, then that was not God. Don't only go to scripture for comfort. Let it break you and cause you to weep. And this is the thought that really gets to me when I think about it. Could it be that we enjoy less of God because we have forgotten how to grieve our sins? Could it be that we have forgotten Jesus' words, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn? It has to start there. If you go into your Bible reading or your devotions or your spiritual practice or whatever you want to call it with a mindset that says, my goal is to receive comfort. My goal is to be happy from this. My goal is just positive feeling from this. You are limiting beforehand what God is wanting to do in your life. And you're trying to take shortcuts. 
the grace comes through the awareness and confession of sin. And so allow it to tear you down. And this isn't something that I naturally emphasize either, which is why this passage has been so powerful to me so many times. So almost every time that I end up reading it, especially now that I'm not reading it every day, the main thing that stands out to me is I need to let God tear me down. I need to just let myself be consumed in the presence of the fire of God. So why was Isaiah not killed when he saw God? I mean, wasn't God pretty clear when he said that nobody can look on him and live? Why is Isaiah alive? Because, as we know, the one whom Isaiah saw would die for Isaiah to have the right to stand there. And, by the way, I love the way the angels talk in this chapter. We would do well to imitate them. In verse 3, it's really interesting in the Hebrew, and it mentions this in the New American Standard Bible footnote here. It says, it's literally not one angel cried to another, but it's this cried to this. That one cried to this one. And so they're not actually technically speaking directly to God. The way that Isaiah writes about what he saw is they were crying this out to one another. They are telling each other how holy God is, how the how full the world is of his glory. And now here the angel is telling Isaiah the greatest news he can ever be told. Your guilt is taken away. There are few blessings greater for a Christian than to be reminded by another Christian that his guilt has been taken away and his sin atoned for. And so I pray that God has often met you throughout the last several years of your life and reminded you of this fact. But I will remind you again right now, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, your guilt is gone. Your sin is covered. The sacrifice has been made. So lift up your heads and straighten your backs for you are clean. So the first three effects of seeing God, the question, right, is what happens if you actually behold God? The first three are an awareness of God's holiness and then awareness of your sin and then awareness of grace. But there is a fourth, the fourth thing that will come upon you when you've truly come face to face with God. And by the way, I should clarify here that I don't mean this in like a physical sense. I mean, spiritually that, you know, Scripture does talk about knowing God in a personal way, even before we die and go to heaven or before he returns to earth. And I'm talking about that. I'm talking about whatever Jesus means when he says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. So the fourth effect, though, is a zeal to serve God. And we see this in the chapter. As soon the moment that Isaiah receives this atonement, we read verse eight. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. The final mark of someone who has been transformed by encountering God is an eager willingness to serve God and do his will. I can only imagine what's running through Isaiah's mind is what runs through mine when I read these verses. What? You actually want to send me? My service actually pleases you? Uh, of course I will go, Lord. Just tell me where. And notice that all God says is, whom shall I go? Whom shall I send and who will go for us? He never says what the task is. It's just like with Abraham, right? God told him to go to a new country and he didn't say what that country would be or what it would be like or what the journey would be like. He just says, go. And Abraham goes. And with Isaiah, he tells him, who will go for us? He says, me, send me, I'll do it. And he doesn't even know where he's going. That's what living by faith means. It means willing to take the next step where you believe God is taking you, having no clue what step two is. You take step one because you know God's calling you to step one and you trust that he's going to tell you step two and you need to know step two.
And by the way, um, this was the passage that really during that year long process convinced me that God wanted me to go into ministry. At the time I was thinking of just pursuing a job. I shouldn't use the word just, I actually take that back very strongly. He was, um, this was the passage that convinced me not to become a firefighter. This is a passage that convinced me to try to pursue full-time ministry because I felt as God was crying out, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Almost involuntarily, I felt my heart responding very loudly. Here I am, send me. And it horrified me at first. And yet it's something that I've since embraced. But how would you like the job described for Isaiah? In verses 9 and 10, it says, um, God speaking, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So imagine if you were told by God that your ministry, far from saving the world, would actually condemn the hearers. How would you respond? Well, look or listen how Isaiah responds. He says, how long, O Lord? That's all he wants to know. It's how long. I'll do it. But how long will this take? And as we know, Isaiah is a very long book, 66 chapters. This is just the sixth one. So there are 60 more chapters of him going on to faithfully preach for a long, long time. The Lord answers, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a tear in thorn oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. You see, Isaiah's ministry would be a ministry of purging, whittling Israel down to a seed, to a remnant within Israel that remained faithful, to a line that would produce the seed. One day, the Lord he saw on the throne would be born on earth. And I just want to leave you today with this picture of Isaiah, eager, willing, joyfully serving God for the entirety of his life. Where did this zeal come from? Well, he had tasted the grace of God for himself, and he simply wanted everyone else to know as well. Well, how did he come to know the grace of God so richly? Because he saw his sin. There is no shortcut to grace. You have to go through the conviction of sin. But why did he see his sin? Because he saw God's holiness. And it is my prayer that during your time today and during the next week and for the rest of your life, you will make it your single goal, your one obsession to know this holy God. Because I imagine that you want that fourth step, right? You want to be able to serve God. And you probably want that third step as well of knowing the grace of God. But the process really involves those first two of first off pursuing to know the holiness of God. And I'm trying to think of practical tips and there really aren't any. This kind of goes back to what I mentioned last time with Peter Kraft that methods really fail us in the end. This is something that we just need to devote our wills to and do. Go in peace.